We are in Acts chapter 2 as we move along in our study of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. My family and I spent four years living in Los Angeles. I pastored a church that had two congregations. One of them was Spanish-speaking. And so I'd love to say that during that time, I learned Spanish. I was a full-time seminary student, so I kind of felt like my brain was on overload, and, and I didn't. Uh, there was a dear brother from Honduras who uh, shepherded that flock, who preached to them, and at times he would translate for me, and we would gather the two congregations together, and I'd be able to, to preach to the whole church family, and it always felt like a little glimpse of, of what John describes as he's looking toward heaven in Revelation 7 when he says, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As part of that church, Robin and I were always invited to the the potlucks and the fellowships of the Hispanic congregation. Over time, we managed to pick up some of the vocabulary, some phrases. We could, you know, in Spanish, speak of brother or sister or God bless you or how are you and those sorts of things. Well, I was out in front of the church one day doing some stuff out near the sidewalk of the church and an Hispanic man walked by and he said, hola. And so I said, hola. And he said, como esta? I said, muy bien. And if I was smart, I would have stopped there. I should have just sort of smiled and signaled that was the end of the conversation. But instead, I, I said, como esta? And he answered. And he didn't give just muy bien. He started in sentences that just started running. And it, it just went fast. And, and I had no idea. And I finally had to just surrender and, and, and use up the rest of my Spanish and say, no habla espanol to which he sort of frowned and, and moved on down the street. I, I wish that I could say that God miraculously gifted me in that moment to speak Spanish, to at least understand what he was saying, but he did not, and that was the end of our conversation. Well, this passage we're looking at in Acts chapter 2, one of the, the focal points here is God giving the ability to speak a language to those who previously did not know that language. We're, we're moving into this section in Acts chapter 2, and, and it's known, Acts 2, primarily for Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. It is a tremendous sermon that we'll be looking at over the course of a few weeks, but this morning we're just going to do the introduction to that sermon, sort of the preparation that lays the groundwork for what Peter will preach at Pentecost. I want to read this whole section, Acts chapter 2. This is verses 1 through 15 that we'll look at this morning. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, 
and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now we're going to stop there. We'll pick up on the rest of the message next week as he actually explains what is happening. But two key points to the, the message this morning from this, this passage here in Acts chapter 2, both related to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And those points are God's Fulfillment of his promise, the promise fulfilled, and the power supplied. God supplying his power. The sending of the Holy Spirit fulfills God's promises to the disciples, and it supplies to them God's power for ministry. Now, Luke starts off by saying this is the day of Pentecost. The word Pentecost literally means the 50th, and it refers to the 50th day after Passover. There were three big celebrations that the Jews typically came to as pilgrims and came to Jerusalem to celebrate. There was Passover, of course. There was this Pentecost, which was the, the Feast of Harvest. And then there was the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, that was in the fall. Pentecost begins in Exodus 23, and it's a celebration of the the springtime harvest, the first wheat harvest of the spring. And so it is a, a, a time that happens in mid-May to early June. Large crowds come together. It later became the day on which they recognized God's giving of the law through Moses on Mount Sinai. So that also became part of the celebration. But Pentecost typically was one of the heaviest attended feasts, and in part because it was a beautiful time of year, because it was springtime, almost summer, and many Jews were gathered together to celebrate that feast, including the disciples. Now, Luke doesn't specify when he says right at the beginning, verse 1, they were all together in one place, that this is just the 12 apostles, or this is some larger gathering place, and it's the roughly 120 that he mentioned in chapter 1, and nor do we know exactly where they are gathered together at this point. But what is very clear is they are suddenly enveloped by this incredible sensory experience. It starts with, with what they hear. It is the sound of rushing wind, and in fact, the language has the idea of wind with violent force. It, it's like sort of hurricane strength wind approaching them. They, they hear this coming. And, and then they see these flames of fire, individual flames that appear above each disciple and then rest upon them. Now, the same Greek word for tongues, for languages later, both speaks to the organ and speaks to languages. It's the same word that's used in this passage. And then it says they experience this filling of the Holy Spirit, which is evidenced in this instantaneous, miraculous ability now to speak languages that they could not have spoken before. This is an incredible moment. And, and Luke describes it in very concrete terms. He wants you to, to know what they heard, what they saw, and how they spoke so that this wasn't some sort of mystical, vague thing that no one could sort of describe or put a handle on. He wants us to know the sound was clear, that in fact, they, they hear this wind, but he even, there's even a sense of direction, he says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a violent wind, a mighty rushing wind. 
And, and so even directionally, they're, they're sensing that this is coming from heaven, the sound, which, which makes perfect sense. Because we've seen last week, Jesus ascends into heaven, and what he had promised was when he goes away from them, he would send the Holy Spirit to them. And so the Spirit comes to them from heaven. Verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is the, the coming of the Spirit. This, this wind is signal to them. It, it is the sending of the Spirit. Both the Old Testament Hebrew word and the New Testament Greek word for spirit overlaps with the word for wind. It is the same word in different forms. Uh, and, and so it is this blowing forth of something. Um, Ezekiel 37 gives a picture that's not entirely different from this. If, if you recall Ezekiel's vision, which would have been about 600 years prior to this, of the valley of dry bones when there are these lifeless bones that are in this desert area and God breathes life into them. And Ezekiel says they suddenly become like an army. Here in Acts 2, he is sending his spirit. This is the one whom he promised. And the spirit is coming like a wind. And not only is he coming over them like a wind, but then he particularly points out that he comes on them individually. The wind fills the, the house where they are sitting, but then divided tongues as a fire appeared and rested on each of them. So there is this massive movement of the Spirit, but it's also individual on each of the disciples, and it pictures this flame like a, a tongue being distributed and resting on each of them. And this is the Holy Spirit now coming upon individual believers, and he makes the point, resting, remaining. The Spirit is now filling individual believers in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus had promised his disciples. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus said, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That Acts 1.5, I put in the, you can see it on the screen there, the word in, 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 along with with, either one of those is possible translations. It's in, the, the, the preposition in the Greek probably even more favors the idea of in, so it's also possible to say not only will you be baptized with the Holy Spirit, but in the Holy Spirit. Uh, I want to think for a few minutes about this baptism of the Spirit and filling of the Spirit. We did this last week, just some of the sort of theological concerns that come up in this passage, and this is one of them. There's overlap here between baptism. Jesus mentions it in Acts 1-5, but we don't see it again in the description here in Acts 2, but this is what Jesus promised. You will be baptized, immersed with the Holy Spirit, or in the Holy Spirit, not many days. And now in Acts chapter 2, it's the Spirit is coming and filling them. That's what Acts 2-4 says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there's some, there's some overlap in this happening, but there's also uh, some difference as they are taught elsewhere in the New Testament than exactly what we're seeing here. The baptism of the Spirit is, is not the same as water baptism. There's water baptism that we practice here. This is speaking now of a spiritual baptism. At, at the start of Jesus' ministry, when John is baptizing Jesus, John says in Luke 3.16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so here back in Luke 3.16, beginning of the ministry of Jesus, there is this promise of this baptism with the Spirit and fire. And, and that's what we're seeing in Acts chapter 2. 
what was promised by John there in, in Luke 3.16, what was promised by Jesus in Acts 1.5 is now being fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. We talk about baptism, and we do this when we do water baptism, just by way of refresher. The Greek word for baptize is to immerse or to submerge in, and historically, if you track some of the etymology of the word back, it, it has the idea of coloring or dyeing a piece of fabric. And so it, it's immersed or submerged in even to the point of identification, so that this which was white now becomes purple or whatever color it's dyed in. So in water baptism, we're giving a picture when we're being baptized of immersion into Christ, the, the sealing into Christ and our union with him in his death and his resurrection. And so that's what we're picturing. And what we're essentially picturing is what happens in the baptism of the Spirit. What's going on in the water is a picture of the spiritual reality of the Holy Spirit coming upon a new believer and now immersing that person in Christ. The Spirit now comes and dwells within, and the person is now joined to Christ, joined to the body of Christ. And so even though we're all sitting in, in different places and you all are in your homes, we know that we are still part of the body of Christ. We are joined to one another. But more importantly, we are identified as being in Christ even in his death and his resurrection. And so on one level, what's happening here in Acts chapter 2, Paul will later describe in Romans 6.3 as something that all believers experience. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, joined, submerged into Christ, united in his death and in his resurrection. And that's what happens through the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, because as Romans 6.3 says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. There's no partial sort of come to faith and baptism later. It's speaking of all believers at this point. This is when we need to remember again that Acts chapter 2 is one of those descriptive passages that we talked about last week. This is, this is narrating for us what took place, not prescribing for us a process for all believers of all times. What it's describing is how those first disciples experienced the baptism and filling of the Spirit all at once. And the reason this happens this way, as, as Luke describes it here, is because this is a transitional point triggered by... Jesus ascending and sending his spirit. It's not prescribing a process for believers. It's saying this is that moment now when those who have already been believing in Christ, now with his departure and now with the arrival of the spirit, now receive the fullness of the spirit. And so this is a new corporate experience of the Holy Spirit, now dwelling individually in all believers. We could go back through the Old Testament and there are instances of the Spirit working sort of individually at different points for different purposes and ministries. This is now a new experience for the body of believers to all at once receive the Spirit. For us, this happens at conversion. We are joined to the body of Christ. For the first disciples, this happened at Pentecost. And so it's not prescribing something for generations of believers to come. It's not the, the Pentecostal doctrine that you get saved by faith and then sometime later you ask for and receive the Spirit. Because in fact, Romans 8, 9 says that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you, you have 
the Spirit. You have received the Spirit. In fact, Galatians 3.27 also describes baptism into Christ as having put on Christ. Those who have put on Christ have been baptized into Christ. And so this happens for a new believer at that moment of conversion. We're joined to the body of Christ at new birth. At, at repentance and faith, there is regeneration. And for the disciples, this was a transitional moment in their walk with Christ. For us, this happens at new birth. Talk about the, the, the filling just a little bit. Ephesians 5 builds on this somewhat. And, and Ephesians 5 is prescriptive. Ephesians 5 is, is saying this is how it is to walk worthy. This is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of Christ's calling in our lives. And Ephesians 5.17 says, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The grammar behind that, I, I just pointed out, and I'll tell you why it matters in just a moment. The grammar is important. It, that, that phrase, be filled, is Present tense, passive voice, imperative mood. And you say, so what? School's all online right now. I don't need this at this moment. Here's, here's why it matters. Imperative, we know why it matters, because it's a command. Because it is, it is the word of God saying, this is what God calls you to do. It is prescribed. Passive says it's something that happens to us. It is in our yielding. We're not actually going out and actively grabbing hold of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that is doing this work. The present tense says it is ongoing. And so this, this is to be the continual role in the Christian life. And, and, and what he means by this is, is given to us by way of contrast in verse 17. To be under the control of the Spirit is contrasted with being under the control of alcohol. And he makes the comparison to drunkenness. Drunkenness is yielding our personal being to a substance, to the control of some other outside influence. And so our capacities are now surrendered to that. The command in Ephesians 5 is not yield to the control of some substance, but rather instead continually yield control to the Holy Spirit. Submit to the Holy Spirit and to his leading. So in other words, a believer is baptized by the Spirit into Christ. Now the Spirit comes and dwells in him and fills that person at conversion. But we're still engaged in this sort of daily battle. Galatians taught us so well on this, that battle between flesh and spirit where we are at various stages of yielding control of our thoughts, our heart, our bodies to the Spirit's leading. We are in that battle of flesh versus spirit in which the, we wrestle sometimes for control, and, and whether we are giving in to fleshly desires or to the Spirit's leading. That's the, the baptism and the filling of the Spirit. And it's, it, it's crucial that we see the difference between what's described here in Acts for the first disciples at this transitional moment in history that's caused by Jesus going away and the Spirit coming and what is prescribed in the New Testament. In Acts, the disciples were first baptized and filled by the Spirit. Believers in Jesus Christ partake in that baptism and filling at conversion, and we are then continually yielding to the Spirit's control. In fact, that, that last 
part about yielding to the Spirit's control is, is exemplified. We'll see it later when we get to Acts chapter 4, 31, and it speaks there of the disciples being filled with the Spirit and then speaking with boldness. Even there, it is a sense of, yes, the Spirit indwells them, and they are filled by the Spirit, but it is their yielding to the Spirit's leading that enables them now to speak with boldness. There's the there's the sort of theological aside on baptism and filling of the Spirit. The, the point, though, I, I want to get back to is this promise fulfilled and power supplied. If we continue on, verse 6 says, The noise like wind began to draw a crowd. It says, They were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So these are Jews who live in Jerusalem it's also clear from what Luke will tell us that there are descendants of other Jews who had lived there who have been scattered by other governments, by other authorities and armies, and they have been dispersed around the, the, the known world at that point, and they have come back as, as pilgrims. And so Luke goes to great lengths to try to give us a picture of this by listing these people groups, starting in verse 9, the Parthians. And the Medes, and if you, you look at the slide, the, the, if you go to the far east, it would be the Parthian Empire. In fact, it's highlighted there in that purple. It says, greatest concentration of Jewish population. That is what would be modern-day Iran to the south of that, but it would include this area that he has in mind, the Parthians and the Medes. He moves from there across. You see Jerusalem down toward the center and the bottom. He moves to what is Judea, the region around Jerusalem, to, to give us a sense of the, the spread of where these people are coming from. He goes south, down into Egypt and Libya. You see at the top of the continent of Africa there, um, right beneath the Mediterranean Sea on that slide. And then up to the west and to the north through Pontus and, and areas, Asia, areas that are described throughout the New Testament where the churches are. They're just below the Black Sea, which is modern-day Turkey. And then he finally ends up with the mention of visitors from Rome, both Jews and those who had converted to Judaism. John Stott writes, in his own subtle way, Luke is saying that on Pentecost, the whole world was there in the representation of the nations. This is a magnificent scene of Jews from throughout the known world who have made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And suddenly they are hearing the sound of sort of hurricane force wind. And it is drawing them to a place where they now see these tongues of flame. And then verse 11 says, they begin hearing testimonies about God and his mighty works in their own languages. And, and to add to the startling nature of this, they, they pointed out in their reaction, they are hearing these words from men who were recognized as being from the region of Galilee, which was not exactly in that day known as a world center for scholarly study. This was the, the, the Jewish outback. This was the, 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 the farmers and the, the fishermen and the shepherds and others who were largely disrespected by the theological intellectual community that would have been around Jerusalem. That was rural countryside. And so not only are they amazed that they're hearing about the works of God, they then say, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They're essentially saying, how is this possible from these know-nothings from out in the sticks who certainly don't know all of our languages. They're not cosmopolitan. They don't know all of these languages. This is impossible. And they're amazed. The miracle here was not in the hearing. It was in the speaking. 
this ability of tongues, of languages that the Holy Spirit gives to them is the ability given by God to now speak in languages that the speaker did not previously know. We'll see this again in Acts chapter 10. We'll see it in Acts chapter 19, all of which have sort of this transitional phase to them as the gospel is going out to other ethnic groups. It's not until you get to 1 Corinthians 12 that there is discussion of tongues as a, as a gift, as a spiritual gift given to believers. It's in 1 Corinthians 12 that it says, to another gifts of healing by one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, same word, to another the interpretation of tongues, all these empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Theologians offer several different descriptions of what the gift of tongues is, and, and maybe we can take that up at another time. We all have some time on our hands right now, so maybe, maybe we'll make that the focus of an online study here in the near future to look at what it, what it looks like in 1 Corinthians 12. But what we know in the book of Acts is what is clear, and that is a miraculous ability, sovereignly given by God to speak a known language for the purpose of clearly communicating God's truth to people without any need for an interpreter. We talked about this last week. We don't know the content of the disciples praying prior to this, but there's no indication that this was something that they had necessarily sought or prayed for. It is the, the empowering work of the Spirit to suddenly, miraculously, sovereignly give to them the ability to now speak these languages and tell of the works of God in, in speech that they otherwise did not possess the capability of. What follows in the crowd is some misunderstanding. What's happening? What does this mean? Even the accusation in verse 13, they are filled with new wine. This is a harvest festival, and they've been celebrating, and, and so there's, there's something going on here. And Peter speaks up. And first thing he says, very logically, Peter says, it's nine in the morning. It's the third hour, third hour after sunrise. They are not drunk. This is not a, a result of drinking. And then he will launch into a sermon using Old Testament prophecy to explain what it is people are seeing. But here's for us what I, what I hope we see. God first fulfilled his promise by sending his spirit. And his spirit then supplies supernatural power to the disciples to be what Jesus already called them to be, witnesses in a hostile world. We've already talked about the fulfillment of the promise. The promise from Luke 3, the promise from Jesus in Acts 1-5. When Jesus went away, the Holy Spirit would be sent, and he comes upon his people, and he is now in them individually. And the same is true for all who are believers in Jesus Christ. But, but central to all of this is the immediate display of what the Spirit brings. The Spirit brings power through those disciples. In their case, they are gifted with languages. You and I may never be given the miraculous knowledge of a language to proclaim the gospel, but that does not sell short the fact that the Holy Spirit brings power to his people to be witnesses. Because if you look at this scene, something else that I think it's vital for us to see. Remember the last time we see Peter in public 
with unbelievers prior to this moment, the last time Peter is sort of the focal point amidst a crowd, it's in Luke chapter 22, and he is running into the night in tears because he has just denied Jesus three times. The, the, the first denial is to a servant girl. Peter wouldn't even acknowledge an association with Jesus in front of a servant girl, and then he denies Christ two more times. I am not one of his followers. I, I, you don't know what you're talking about, in fact, is the, the language that Peter uses. I've had nothing to do with Jesus. That is Peter's last big moment on the stage in Jerusalem. And here we are about two months later. And Jerusalem's filled with another crowd. And, and this time they are surrounding Peter and the 11. They have heard this wind and wherever this is happening, whether this is the outer court of the temple or whether this is at a large home, they have, they have begun to gather. And Peter and the 11 are now surrounded by a crowd and there are voices within this crowd that are now beginning to mock the disciples and, and thereby mock God and his work. Here's Peter. Here's the one who had denied the Savior. And here is this crowd gathering. And verse 14 says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Here is Peter saying, Listen to me. Pay attention. This is, this is one of those scenes that if when we get to heaven, we get to watch replays in heaven of Bible scenes. This is one I want to see. Whether this was in front of a house or at the outer court, here is this crowd drawn by the, the sound. The mockery begins. And in the Greek, the first word in verse 14, the way Luke wrote this, the first word is the verb for stood. Luke had told us back in verse 2, that they were uh, in, where they were sitting. They were in the house sitting, and, and Luke wants it clear that Peter, in this moment, arose, and he, he stood. This is, this is sort of like the movie scene, you know, where the, you need that hero to sort of stand up, and, and all of a sudden the crowd, the music kind of builds, and the hero stands up to, to state the case. And Peter rose to his feet, and it looks like the 11 did with him based on the language there. And it says he raises his voice. He commands the attention of the crowd. Listen to me. He silenced the mockers. And with boldness, Peter launches into a message that would indict the crowd for crucifying Jesus, that would declare Jesus to be risen and on the throne of David, on the throne of King David. And he would command those in the crowd to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. This is not a testimony to Peter's greatness. This is not a testimony to what a great orator Peter suddenly was. He didn't actually become a brave hero. This isn't a lesson in how to win over crowds. This is a direct testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of an ordinary believer. Peter was still the same fisherman from Galilee. But something changed 
Something changed from within him and within the other 11 apostles, and it was the power of the Holy Spirit now dwelling in them and bringing to them the very presence of Christ. The promise of the Spirit has been fulfilled not just for them, but for all who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone as Savior. And to us, the same Spirit has been given in full measure. We also have, in fact, the New Testament that Peter didn't have at that moment. We have this Spirit. God called those disciples to one task. It's the same one that applies to us that we saw in Acts 1.8. Be witnesses of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, and I will empower you to do that. I will place upon you supernatural power to do the work and to know that he is always with us, and we have that spirit empowering and enabling us. We're surrounded by people whose language we know, who need to know about Jesus Christ. We are living in an unprecedented moment in history. God has given us the gift of being alive at the time of a global pandemic. God has placed us here And there is palpable fear on the news, in our neighbors, hearts of people around us. Will I have a job? Will I stay well? Will there be enough medicine if I got sick? Are there people around me who are infected? And it's the the sort of fear that threatens to creep into our hearts. But God has put us here for this time. And the spirit that equipped his disciples to now go and proclaim Christ to this crowd and proclaim him as risen and to call men to repentance, that spirit is now the same spirit given to us. The one who gives boldness and power. The one through whom Jesus fulfills the promise to never leave us or forsake us. Paul told Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Praise God that his promise was fulfilled. He told his disciples, the spirit will come and he will come upon you. And the spirit has come like this fire like this powerful wind, and he has come on the body of Christ, but he has come individually on each of us as believers. And through his spirit, he has given to us power. Power to be witnesses to Lorton in northern Virginia and to the ends of the earth. And may we bring great glory to him by living boldly for the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as we see this experience and we are tempted to to somehow feel that we haven't quite had something as dramatic or sensory or experiential, the truth is that we have the same Spirit. Those who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, 
have been baptized into the body of Christ and indwelt by the Spirit of God so that the very presence of Jesus is with us wherever we are. Thank you for your Spirit. Thank you for his presence. Enabling us, empowering us, giving us wisdom, bringing to mind scripture that we have meditated on, enabling us to speak truth. Enabling us to do what these disciples did, and that is to testify of the mighty works of God. Thank you, Father, for your spirit. Thank you that your spirit brings conviction to the world and convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and does so through the body of Christ as we stand for holiness and truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that your spirit, through your people, through your word, would bring conviction to people around us, that those who are trapped in fear and uncertainty for whom death is terrifying, that your spirit would bring the gospel to bear and would convict them and bring them to the same truths that Peter taught on that day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, that there is a Savior, Jesus Christ, crucified according to the foreordained plan of God to be in the place of sinners and to bear the wrath of God, do sinners, and then risen. And this Jesus Christ rose in power from the grave and ascended into heaven and sent us his spirit that we might speak forth these truths. Pray, Lord, that this day you would be saving people from the, the fearful, uncertain world that we are in and bringing them to hope and life and peace and rest in the Savior who is Jesus Christ. Lord, help us by your spirits enabling to to go forth this day unafraid of the circumstances around us, able to seek out opportunities to glorify you, to proclaim Jesus Christ, to speak of the gospel, and to see it powerfully accomplish the work that your spirit can do through the spreading forth of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.